Well, I think it's a true statement that every single one of us, deep down, intuitively, knows that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Um, Sickness, disease, disasters, uh, storms, conflicts, wars, racism, sexual abuse, poverty, oppression, death, and the list just goes on and on. Yes, there are, there are joys and there are delights and there's satisfaction to be had. And sometimes that can be sustained for a long time. Sometimes that's very fleeting. Uh, but none of us are untouched by the, the profound brokenness that shapes every aspect of life in this world. None of us. And, and also, even more close to home, deep down inside we know that we aren't the way we're supposed to be. All is not well here or there. <laughs> it's not. Some, some people on the surface may disagree with that statement and they, they may say, no, I'm actually, I'm actually good with myself. But, but beneath that veneer of good is a lot of bad. And we all know it. We do. We, 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 we all have parts of our lives that we wish we could change. I mean, we see evidence of this all around us. See, this is why there are so many gym memberships. And there is so much exercise equipment that's purchased. And often it's not used. Um, this is why advertisers are so effective when they're peddling their products or programs that promise to, to change your life and for in, in some way. This is why there are so many self-help books and self-help podcasts and blogs that, that are trying to, they're, they're appealing to that sense that all is not right with me. Even those who don't admit they have major flaws or faults, they feel this compulsion to prove themselves to others. And, and so, which is really evidence deep down that they, they know things aren't really right with them. And so a question we can ask is, why aren't we the way we feel we should be? Why, why, why am I not the husband I, I think I should be? Or the father? Why, why, don't, why am I not the pastor that I feel I should be? Why, why am I not the man I, should feel, I, I feel I should be? And, and on and on. And the Bible answer is this. The Bible's answer is this. Is we're not the way we should be because we're not where we should be. Say that again, we're not where we're not the way we should be because we're not where we should be. And we'll open that up as we see this here in Genesis chapter three. And so there's gonna be three points this morning, one statement and two questions this morning as we walk through this passage in Genesis three. The statement is this it's that we are exiles. That's where we are right now. We are exiled. The two questions are gonna be what happened? What caused that? And then how do we get home? And so the first statement is this, is we are exiles. You and I and the whole human race, we are exiled. We're exiled to live in a world that's fundamentally broken and flawed, that's populated by people, everybody, that it, and we're all broken and flawed. And so the, the definition of exile is simply this, it's a state of being barred from one's native country, typically for political or punitive reasons. So you belong somewhere, you were made to live in one place, but you're not allowed to live there anymore. 
You're removed from there. You're exiled somewhere else. And in, and in our case, it's not political, but it is punitive. We did something wrong and we had to leave. We don't deserve to be where we should be anymore. And so in that sense, it's equally true that we're not where we should be because we're not the way we should be. Both of those statements are really true. And here's, here's, the, really crux, here's the crux of the dilemma, is we can't right our wrongs. We, we can't get ourselves back. We can't get ourselves home. We can't pay the penalty for our crimes that caused our expulsion so that we can be cleared to return to our home country. We can't do it. So we remain in exile, and because of where we are now, things will not be the way they should be now. So we're going to start at the very end of this passage in Genesis 3, the last verses of Genesis 3, starting verse 22. And, and, and so look there with me. We're, we're not going to be able to dissect every word and every phrase in this passage of, of, from Genesis 3. Our, our pace is going to be quickening in our study of the book of Genesis. There's a lot here. We're going to kind of focus on the big ideas and the things that are really critical for us to learn as we move forward in this book. But look at verse 22 with me. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. So there's this inner Trinitarian conversation going on. Father, Son, Spirit. We saw this in, in the creation days as well. But he's become like one, of, like one of us in knowing good and evil. Remember what the goal of eating the forbidden fruit was. Remember? I know it's been a few weeks. But it was moral autonomy. It was, this, it was this declaration of independence from God. It was They wouldn't have to depend upon God anymore for this knowledge of what is good and what is evil. So it's in that limited sense that they've become like God. And they thought that this was the allure. This was the deception of the serpent. This is what he. This is the appeal to to Eve and and to Adam. They, they thought that being like God would that, that they would not having to answer to God. That was like the path to happiness and to perpetual satisfaction. If we could if we could just be like God, then we'd be happy. But in reality, true happiness isn't found in being like God in that sense but it's found in being with God. It's found in being with God, enjoying the blessings of His presence. And that's the very thing that they're losing here. And so, continuing on, now, lest He reach out His hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, and so, lest that scenario happen, therefore the Lord God sent Him out from the Garden of Eden. So, it's not just Adam. Eve's sent out too, and so she's not given a pass to remain in the garden, but Adam's the representative head of his family, of humanity. And so, they're sent out. This is not... I know we read that and we think, man, what is going on there? It's not because God was threatened by Adam and Eve. It's not because they were, he was trying to protect his domain of eternality. That's, that's really not the idea. While this is judgment on Adam and Eve, and it is, there is also a measure of grace here. And it's this, is that God was not willing to let them live forever in a state of exile and sin and misery and separation from Him. 
And see, he has a, he has a bigger plan. Praise God. And we're, we get to be the, the beneficiaries of that plan. So, so cutting them off from the tree of life, consigning them to death in exile, is also this act of mercy from God. So it goes on. The Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. That's very strong language. Like the Israelites were to do with the Canaanites when they went into the promised land. They were to drive them out. They, they, he drove out the man. The man and woman are banished from the garden. Forever expelled. Forever exiled. Driven out from the presence of the God who made them. And it's not, uh, check back in five years and I'll see how I'm feeling about this then. No, this is, this is done. It's a permanent banishment. Even if they, or we, wanted to get, go back and get back, we can't. And God made sure of it. See at the end there. And at the east of the Garden of Eden where they left, He, he, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So there's this sword. A sword represents justice. Or death even. And so, so Paul in Romans says that, uh, the, that the government doesn't bear the sword in vain. We see that. We, un- we use it the same way today. But sword, it's do something wrong, you deserve justice. Even death. And so there's this flaming sword and this big, mighty, militaristic angel cherubim. So don't picture a little winged, naked baby angel. That's not what this is. There's this, this, this majestic creature and he's guarding the way back into the garden. And we're exiled. Outside the garden. A quote from Tim Keller. It should be on the screen. The Garden of Eden was our true home. There we were perfectly related to God, self, others, and the physical environment. It was the place of perfect shalom, full human flourishing, and interdependent, interwoven relationships. God rested and we rested. This did not mean that there was no work, but that all things were in perfect harmony, and therefore it was the perfect home. That's the Garden of Eden. Everything was as it should be. We were built for that. We were made for life in the presence of God, but because of our sin in Adam, we were expelled from our true home. So we're exiled now to die outside of the garden, outside of God's presence because of our sin. Now, we... We, we, we can't stray from this line of thinking. And so, just think again. Those very first hearers. Remember, Moses is writing this years after the creation account. And so, he's, God's giving him this revelation of how things were in the beginning. And the Israel is wandering in the wilderness, coming out of the exodus. They're in the wilderness with Moses. And just, they're wondering why they're there. What's going on? What's happening why are we in the wilderness? Why are things so hard for us? Why, what's wrong with this world? Why are we constantly oppressed, attacked? Why is it so hard to obey, to trust the Lord? Why aren't things the way we think they should be? Is there any hope? Has God given up on us? Has He given up on His promises to us? Will we ever be home? I mean, these are the questions 
that are being answered here. They, they would eventually come out of the wilderness and they would, they would make it to the promised land, but they won't be satisfied. And they won't be obedient. That's their story. They, they have some success over enemies. You have David and slaying their enemies and giving peace in the land. There's the city, Jerusalem, God's city. And there's a temple. And it seems like they are where they should be and everything should be right, but it's still not right. So they're deported to Babylon because of their sin and their rebelliousness to the Lord and, and they're slaves there for hundreds of years and then finally they're back in Jerusalem. But they're still not satisfied. Because they're, they're always exiles. They, 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 they can never find their way home even in their own land that God has given them. And their story is, it's our story, isn't it? We're all born physical and spiritual exiles. We aren't where we should be. We're not in paradise enjoying the, this unhindered presence of God and fellowship with God. That's what God created us for, but that's not our experience. It's like, it's like the, the, and I just say this, that reality, that fact that we're exiles, it dominates our lives. But it's all we've ever known. Well, it's like we're chained birds that we, we, we're made to fly, but we've never, we've never left the ground before. God's given us these wings and we have this innate sense that we're made for more, but we can't break free. We're exiled here. And this reality is so pervasive that even, even with the good things we experience here, in exile, they're, they're just simply glimpses of this true, uh, long-lost home. C.S. Lewis talked about this in a sermon that he's famous for called The Weight of Glory. And he said this, is in the context, he's talking about these good, beautiful, pleasurable things. They are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. So even, even when we experience good things now, they don't fully satisfy. The next vacation... The next promotion at work, the next pay increase, the next purchase, the next like on social media, the next romance. We end up making these good things idols. We're looking for them to do something and to give us something that they're not made to give us, that we're made to receive from God alone. And so we're unsatisfied. Why? It's because we're not home. Things aren't the way... They should be because we're not where we should be. We are in exile. We're, and so that's, that's where we are. Now the question that we get, now we're going to backfill a statement. This is, they're banished from the garden and with them all of humanity. That's all we've known is exile. So what went wrong? What happened? And and then the bigger question, how can we get back there? That's what we're going to see in the rest of this. These are the burning questions for Israel in the wilderness. And as God's giving them this revelation of Himself, and these are the burning questions that we need to ask as well. So first, what went wrong? Why were we exiled? 
And every child in, in Sunday school class can share the answer in unison, right? Sin! It's either God, Jesus, or sin uh, to most Sunday school question answers. That's the, it's always B or C on multiple choice, and it's always God, Jesus, or sin. Don't get them wrong, though, because that can be really messy and bad theology. But there's this descent of sin in Genesis 3 that leads to our expulsion from the garden that we just looked at in verses 22 to 24. And I say we and our because their sin is our sin. Biblically speaking, they is us. It's not good grammatically speaking, but the biblically speaking, that's, that's what we're seeing. And so, what went wrong? Why are we exiled? And the first one is something we looked at last time, but just by way of review. We distrusted and defied God. We distrusted and defied God. The sin that started all sin was an act of disobedience to God's command, which was rooted in uh, distrust of God's goodness. And, and so Adam and Eve, they doubted God. They're suspicious of, of God's goodness. And God gave them this command not to eat of this fruit. And the serpent comes in and starts like, you, did God really say that? And, and you, know, you know why God doesn't want you to eat that fruit. Because He's withholding something from you. Something good from you. And so they're, they're beginning to doubt God's goodness. They're beginning to question His authority. And they end defying His authority and disobeying this clear command. And so they're putting them, trying to put themselves in the place of God. Taking upon themselves prerogatives and rights that belong to God alone. That's where it all began. And that's the essence of sin. That's the sin that led to our banishment from God's presence. And what caused our exile continues to define our time of exile, doesn't it? And this is... This goes on outside of the garden, outside of God's presence. This is where sin just flourishes in our lives and in our world. God's authority continues to be defied. I'm not talking about... I mean, this is, this is us. And, and, and His goodness continues to be distrusted. Every time we sin, that's what we're doing and saying with that sin. The prince, and this principle of sin is in all of us. It's, it's just the air we breathe. We're all born hardwired for this now. Sin is this, is this universal reality because of that first offense. Let me just, before we move on, I didn't make this application last time we were here, and I, it's a, just a quick application of this truth before we continue on to the passage for today. It's, it's understanding this, this universal reality of sin, it, it's very important because it means that no one is fundamentally better than anybody else. And that's so important to remember. And we can forget it. I can't look down my nose at another person and say, now, there's a sinner. I can't. Why? Because according to Genesis 3, the same sin, the, the, the same seed of sin behind that behavior that's particularly repulsive to me is, is in my heart as well. Now, maybe it didn't sprout in the same way that it did in that life, uh, because I wasn't in the same environment as that person, but the fact of the matter, according to Scripture, I am no better. There's this universal reality of sin. Your brothers and sisters, if, if we grasp this truth, it's going to radically change our attitudes and our words and our actions towards others. The, the contempt for sinners that we so often have, the pharisaical-like contempt 
for sinners we have will give way to compassion. Jesus-like compassion. Our social media feeds won't be filled with sarcastic caricatures of people that we disagree with or that we're very different from religiously or morally or, or, or politically. These are just some realities that are going to be affected if we really grasp and lay hold of this truth, brothers and sisters. This truth of this Christian doctrine of, of universal sin, universal depravity. And so really grasping the, the fact that we are all sinners in need of God's grace, it's going to make us gracious towards others in the church and outside of the church. Alright, back to the main trail. So, this is why, what went wrong? Why are we exiled? It's because we're all we're, we're, we, we, of distrust and defiance that we, we were part of in the garden because of our union with Adam. Second, so we, we disobey God, we defy God. Second, we hid from God. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now here, who are they hiding from? God's not around yet. He's not in the picture. They're, they're covering up from each other, for each, for each other. This is what sin brings. We talked about this last time. It brings shame. We can't bear to have people know who we really are. Let me just say, the thought of two people trying to cover their nakedness with fig leaves is almost comical. Isn't it? I've got fig leaves to the embarrassment of my wife. I'm not going to demonstrate anything today. This is the, I I hate figs and I don't like the plants either because they're sticky and they're and they're scratchy and they, but the, 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 we we laugh at this, but we have our more sophisticated versions of fig leaves and we continue to do the same thing to hide. We hide behind things. Our natural tendency is to hide who we truly are from others. To present a more acceptable version of ourselves to the public, to other people. This is life on this side of the fall. But it's not just people we hide from. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God. Remember this? Yahweh Elohim. The covenant Lord. This is... They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So, they hear the sound of the Lord walking. Walking, it's not just the physical uh, you know, walking. This is sort of an anthropomorphism here. But, but we, we, we use it in this way. It it's, it's means friendship, relationship. We say to somebody, thank you for walking through this with me. And we're, we're speaking of someone who's close and intimate, has, has carried with you its friendship. God came seeking friendship. He's there to meet with Him on friendly terms and relationship. But what happens? The man and the woman hid. Now, can they really hide from God? Can, can, can the trees that God created and God placed in the garden, can they really provide cover to hide their nakedness and shame from God? Of course not. They haven't learned what David knew many years later. He said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, behold, you are there. And we can say, if I try and hide among the trees, Lord, you are there. 
You see everything. It's just, but listen, it's just as ridiculous how we try and hide from God. And we, we do. We hide from one another. We hide, from, we hide behind trees of religious performance. We hide behind trees of busyness and of morality and of political views and of you know, family identity. And, but God sees. God knows. And now notice here. God takes the initiative. They're hiding, but God is seeking. God is pursuing. See the, see the mercy of God's heart here. He doesn't come into the garden you know, stomping through there angrily like parents do down the hallway when we're ready to pounce on our kids. He doesn't come in there. He comes in there in, with this friendship, walking, cool of the day, and He comes, and what does He do? He questions them. Where are you? What have you done? Have you done what I asked you not to do? I mean, he's, he's, this is the line of questioning here that, that God gives. And what is God doing with these questions? He's not looking for information. He's like, I don't, I don't know where you are or what ha- what's going on. He's not trying to elicit information from them. them from, from them. What is he trying to do? He's trying to elicit a confession from them. He's trying to draw that out. He's trying to get them to tell him what they should know. Admit what you've done. Say who you are. Own it. And so, so, so he's not again not looking for information he doesn't already have. He's he's asking questions because he's trying to get them to understand something. And so, Adam realizes that God knows everything. God sees his heart, sees his shame. He he sees what he's done. And so Adam now understanding what God knows, what, what, what God's doing, he makes this grand confession to the Lord. Look at the text. My God, forgive me, for I have sinned against you. No more hiding. No, that's not what it says. It's not a, trans, not a translation difference in my Bible. No, look at verse 12. The man said, the woman. Let me just say, he's already off on the wrong foot here. <laughs> The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And so, again, let's see this progression here. Why are we exiled? What went wrong? We defied God. We, we distrusted God's goodness. We, secondly, we hid from God. And then third here, we see we, we blamed God. Adam is ultimately blaming God. Yes, he's blaming Eve secondarily. Yes, she gave me the fruit, but he says, this is the woman that you gave to me. One commentator says, it's as if the man was saying, remember that, quote, suitable helper you gave me? Obviously, she wasn't that suitable after all. It's all your fault. What was I supposed to do? That's it. And so, one, sin makes us willing to throw anybody around us under the bus to justify ourselves, which is exactly what he's doing to Eve. He's essentially saying, God, send her to hell, not me. And so we, we're, we, this is what, we, horizontally, this is the way sin works. This is the way we blame others. We, we want, we'll, 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 it, it's always you for me. It's your, your life and, and for, for mine. And so we, we, we justify ourselves by putting others down and throwing them under the bus. But this is the other thing. As he's saying, ultimately, God, it's you. This is what it is. Sin is so stupid that it makes us think that the way out of trouble 
is more of the same thing that got us into trouble. And it's this. It's, he's doubting God's wisdom and goodness. The very same thing that got him into this predicament. Hiding from the Lord, shame, sin, misery, separation. Is He says, I guess that's what's going to get me out. I'm going to distrust God's goodness and say, it's your fault, God. You gave me this woman. Not so suitable after all. Well, God's not fooled by Adam's response. (laughs) No surprise. He knows the real story. But instead of just laying into him right here, he turns to the woman and he questions her. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Again, what's going on? He's drawing out from Eve what's in her heart. He's trying to draw out this honest confession. And what happens? Eve turns around and immediately she shifts blame to the serpent. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now it's actually true, but it doesn't absolve her of guilt. She, she, she knew it was off limits, that tree. And she ate anyway, but she's saying, I, I wouldn't have eaten if, it hadn't, if, he, if that servant hadn't been so sneaky. I mean, after all, it's a talking snake. <laughs> what do you expect? Well, again, I say we because things really haven't changed for us, have they? I mean, this just characterizes life in exile outside of the garden. We, we sin, we hide, we blame. We, we don't own it. We don't confess it. We don't take responsibility for it. We blame others. We blame circumstances. Ultimately, we blame God who brought those people and those circumstances into our lives. And so you have, yeah, this is the scene. You have two people, uh, they're totally ashamed, trying to cover themselves, trying to hide. They're pointing fingers at others. And you have a serpent who's over there grinning. This is exactly what he was going for. And then... Into that scene, God speaks. God acts. He's in charge. And He punishes the serpent and the woman and the man. And so that's the fourth thing. Why are we in this exile? Why are things not working the way they should? Well, it's because we're not where we should be. Why aren't we where we should be? Well, it's because we sinned. It's because we hid. It's because we blamed. It's because we've been judged by God. We were judged by God. So see the serpent here. You could Now, you could read this judgment and this curse on the serpent and you think, okay, this is why we hate snakes so much. And some of you really do hate snakes a lot. I realize that. Uh, and maybe there's something to that and it's kind of hardwired into us now. I don't know. I, I've seen a lot of pictures of snakes, it seems like, in the last week on, on uh, social media that we had a big, giant copperhead found that was killed in our neighborhood and you know, they're letting neighbors war- uh, know and everything like that. And, you, you know, it just gives you the chills and start walking, looking everywhere I go. And Patrick sent me a picture of his kids holding snakes. I think it was like family worship or something, snake handling. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that's what it looked like. Uh, <laughs> that's what they're doing at their house. But, um, no. So, I, but that's not the, that's, I don't think that's the main point. But, Look at the text. Unlike Adam and Eve, where God questions them, say, what's going on? Where were you? Why are you hiding? Serpent's not questioned at all. He's not given an opportunity to speak. He has no right. He has no rights at all. Uh, Unlike the man and woman, he's not included in God's redemptive plan. So verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Satan, because you have 
done this. There's, there's moral culpability for the deception. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, which again is implicitly saying everything's going to be cursed. But above all of that, cursed are you on your belly, you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, I don't want you to get sidetracked trying to think of what the pre-fall anatomy of a snake was like, and four legs, two legs, I, I, we don't know. The point of this is humiliation. It's utter defeat. And he says, he goes on, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's a, that's a curse on Satan. But listen, it's actually a mercy for the woman. That, that, that animosity is going to be a protection for her against further deception. So now, this serpent that seems so friendly and seems so likable is now seen as an, an, as, as an adversary. It's a mercy. And, and, but it's going to, it's, it is going to cause so much pain and so much conflict moving forward. Because it goes on, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now when he says your offspring, he's not talking about just a bunch of baby snakes or, you know, little baby devils or, you know, demons or something like that. He, it, it's natural humanity. It's, it's, it's humanity joined in Satan's rebellion against God. And, and so that's your offspring. And when he speaks of her offspring, it's, it's the elect of God who, from whom will come the one, the seed, the offspring. And so world history, it's, it's the story of this conflict being played out. It's played out every day. It's played out in shootings and stuff that we've been seeing in the news in the last 24 hours. It's, it's the serpent and his seed trying to eradicate the seed of the woman. And he goes on, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now we're going to come back to that at the end, but this, this part of the curse on the serpent is a blessing for us. There's blessing in this curse, as we're going to see. Glorious blessing. Now he moves to the, the man and the woman, and, and for them it's their roles that are cursed. And so to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So, increase pain in childbearing. Um, it's not that bad, is it? No, don't, don't just kidding, no, don't throw things at me. I do wonder what childbirth would have been like if it wasn't for the fall. And was it like, uh, you're going to feel a little pressure here or something like that. I, I don't know. I'm going to stop before I embarrass myself and my family. Um, so, so pain in childbearing, but there's also going to be pain in marriage. And I, and I know there's different interpretations of this desire. Your desire will be for your husband. I understand based on the context, based upon the exact grammatical construction and the exact vocabulary from this statement. It's used again in Genesis 4-7 where the text says, sin's desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. I understand that this woman's desire to be this, this natural bent as a result of the fall to, toward chafing at her husband's authority. It's a fall-affected authority. Not a sinless authority, but... So, so there's dysfunction, there's disharmony in the marriage. Now others do see this desire positively. And so they, they, it's like, even though childbearing is going to be very painful and it's going to be excruciating, you're not going to stop having babies because you're going to continue to have a desire for your husband. 
And so that is a possible interpretation. I had a seminary, my Old Testament prof in seminary, took this view, did his dissertation on it. So I'm not saying this has no merit and textual merit to it. But either way, what I want you to see is what is clear is that there's this breakdown in the family unit that comes. It comes with sin. The harmonious relationship that God intended between the man and woman is now dysfunctional. Loving authority is no longer natural for the husband. Again, gladly yielding to the husband's headship, it's, it becomes increasingly difficult. We are, we are relationally affected by the fall. And, and so we, we have a popular way of saying this in, in the culture, and we call it the battle of the sexes. And, and I, I'm not advocating that language or all that's implied by that, but, but this and every other relational battle in life, it, it has roots and it exists because of the fall. Now before I move to the man, let me just point out that there is good news again embedded in this, in this curse, even in the pain and childbearing. And, and I know that's easy for me to say, but the good news is this. Think about what this is saying. Remember, remember what uh, the curse was. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And here, there's good news. is Eve, you're not going to die today. You're going to live and you're going to bear children. And, so, and God is, not only that, God is going to turn around and use the pain of childbearing that's there because of the curse, and He's going to use that to bring about our redemption. And because and, he's going to do that, he's going to bring forth her serpent-crushing offspring. He's going to crush the serpent's head. So we get into Galatians 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. And so, all right, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's the conclusion. Then we look at the man. Quickly, verse 17. And, he, and to Adam... He said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Now listen, the problem is not that he listened to the voice of his wife. Don't try this on your wife's husbands. Uh, that's not the sin. The root issue is he doesn't listen to God's voice. That's clear. He chose to listen to Eve when she was speaking contrary to what God had clearly spoken. And he says, because of this, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, same word as childbearing, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the curse, as we know, it's not in the work. Work was good before the fall. And so Adam was called to work the ground, cultivate it, subdue the earth. And so that's not it. The curse is the toil, the pain, and the futility of work after the fall. It's not going to be easy. There's now this breakdown in, in man's relationship to the physical environment. There's this constant clash that, that, that exists now. Thorns and thistles grow with flowers and fruit. The dust and the ground, it's no longer our friendly ally. And, and so the, the creation in response to God's curse, it's now hostile. Now there are harmful germs and viruses and bacterias and diseases. Now insects and other creatures have overstepped the, the, the beneficial purposes that God gave them and now they become just annoying and dangerous pests. Now there are destructive forces like floods and 
tornadoes and earthquakes and droughts and famines and other disasters. Now we age. Now we get sick. Now we die. Romans 8.20 says, All creation was subjected to futility because of Adam's sin. Verse 22, The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so we were waiting for the consummation of God's redemptive work. And so the gravel of sin that we talked about that was thrown into the machinery of, of the created world, it's, it, it, it's so, so that it, now it's just broken. It's corrupted. And it has been ever since. Most significantly, we've been separated from God. This is the worst of it all. Exiled to die apart from the Lord. And so Genesis 3, it's this sad, tragic ending to this creation story that we've been looking at. But it's so much more than that. It's, it's also the, this glorious beginning of the, the redemptive saga that's going to, going to fill the rest of the Scriptures. Pat alluded to this. And so in the midst of all of this loss, we see this clear evidence of divine grace towards Adam and Eve, towards all of us. And so we, let's look at that then. So we, we are exiles. That's the statement. The question, what went wrong? What happened? Why are we in exile? We've answered that. Third, how can we get back home then? How do we get back home? And so in the middle of this black hole of this curse, there are these, there are these reverberations of grace. And there are these rays of gospel light that, that shine through this penetrating, stifling darkness of this passage. One that we skipped over is in verse 20. Adam renames the woman Eve. This is where she gets... We've been calling her Eve because we... Just for simplicity. But this is where she gets the name Eve. Which means living one. Life. Again, right after the curse. Why? Adam's naming her by faith. He, he believes the undercurrents of grace that are there in God's pronouncements of judgment upon them and that she's going to live and that she will bear children. And so he, he looks at her and he names her Eve, living one, because she's the mother of all living creatures, living beings. So yes, they're under the curse, but God's not done with them. He's not done with the human race. He has a bigger plan. But the, but the gospel, the good news is that there's hope for us. There's hope for exiles. There's hope for us and when we're living in a, in a time and a place where things are not the way they're supposed to be. The pain and difficulty of exile life is very real and you experience it. But so is the promise of return. We are exiled, listen, we are exiled because of our sin and because of the curse. What's our hope then? That one might come who will take on our sin and take on the curse. In our place. How can we go home? Someone is going to have to be crushed in our place. Someone is going to have to be stripped and sacrificed in our place. Someone is going to have to be cast out and is going to have to go under the sword for us. Now what was this distant hope, future hope for Israel as they're in the, in the wilderness hearing these words for the first time? Now it's something we look back upon. Because clearly... In Scripture, this Christ came and He fulfills these glimmers of Gospel light that are shining here in Genesis 3, anticipating His coming. Jesus was cursed in our place. We looked at this very clearly last week in Isaiah 53. 
And so, so, so why? So that we wouldn't have to die in exile because of the curse, but could live and go home with the Lord. So let's look quickly at the good news here and end this way. One, Jesus was bruised and he was crushed for us. Look back at Genesis 3.15. This verse has been called for centuries the Proto-Euangelion, the, the first gospel. And so it's the first gospel promise in the Bible. He will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. Bruise is maybe a little too tame of a, of a, of a translation. It's to crush or to strike. So, so just, you can picture the scene. Imagine a group of people, maybe a family gathering in the backyard, having a cookout on a pretty day like today. And into that gathering comes this large, slithering viper as fast as it can, heading right at the group. And one man goes after the snake and begins to stomp on it. Finally, he crushes the head of the serpent saves the family, but in the process of doing that, he gets struck, bitten by the snake on his heel. That's the image of this. That's the picture. And so you see, the first Adam, the Adam of Genesis here, he should have done something like that. He, he should not have just stood there and let the serpent destroy his family and humanity. The first Adam should have jumped on that snake and stomped on it, choked it out, whatever it took to kill that thing. But listen, the second Adam will. second Adam did. On the cross, Jesus crushed the head of Satan, defeated him, and in the process, we know his heel was crushed. Isaiah 53, looked at this last week, Jesus was bruised, crushed, pierced, stricken on the cross. But while Jesus' heel was crushed, the serpent's head was smashed. So there's a seed of hope planted in Genesis 3.15. This first gospel promise. This bright ray of light. Second, Jesus was stripped for us. He, he took our shame. Look at verse 21. We skipped over this. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Simple question, what's necessary to get the skin from an animal? Don't say a knife. Don't be smart. Uh, yes, death. Death. You, you can't get the skin from an animal like you can get wool from a sheep. You know, shearing a thing. You, the animal has to die. It has to be killed. And so, imagine those first years. Israelites with Moses in the wilderness. And they hear about these skins that are provided. What are they thinking? Thinking death, sacrifice. That's it. So there's this shedding of blood in the garden, perhaps the very first thing to ever physically die. And God Himself makes this covering for Adam and Eve out of it. Although sin and death have now entered into the world, God's already showing grace to them. In the first couple, they try to cover their sin and shame with their own efforts, trying to you know, sew together these fig leaves. It, it, it's futile. Instead, God steps in and does for them what they could not do for themselves. He provides adequate covering. Now, I realize the you know, fresh animal skins draped over your naked body may not sound like adequate covering to you, but this is, this is the image as God is providing this covering, this clothing for them that's suitable. And again, you see this you see the hint. It's not, I don't mean it's in full HD, you know, 3D, full color here. But we see this hint at coming grace here. And, 
and, and, and many theologians and commentators point this out. The gospel is in this imagery. What, it, what happened? We know what we happened. Christ took on our nakedness and our shame and our sin. He was stripped naked. He was sacrificed. He was killed so that we might be adequately clothed. Clothed in His righteousness. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. To try and earn righteousness through our own performance, to try and earn or covering through our own merit is the spiritual equivalent to clothing ourselves with fig leaves. Our own righteousness is never enough to cover our sin or our shame before a holy God. We need garments that we can provide but have been given freely to us because of Jesus died in our place. We need garments of His righteousness provided at the expense of His own life. Third, Jesus was driven out for us. Verse 23 and 24, again, Adam and Eve, they're, they're driven out of the garden, banished, expelled forever. And what do we know when Jesus comes? He comes and He's cast out for us. He left His heavenly home to be a homeless wanderer on earth. He, he was cast out by His earthly family. He was cast out by His friends. He was cast out by the religi- religious leaders. He was cast out by the Roman Empire. Then he was taken outside of Jerusalem, cast outside of the gates to be crucified. And finally, he was cast out of God's loving presence in our place, forsaken by the Father for us, enduring his wrath on our account. Hebrews 13.12, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And that brings us to the last gospel stream of light that comes in. Jesus went under the sword for us. He went under the sword for us. He died for us. When God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden again, there's this flaming sword there that, that, that it's just saying, nobody can get back into the garden. Nobody can get back into the presence of God. Try and you will die. The only way for us to get back is if someone risks going under the sword uh, to get us there. And it couldn't be just anybody. It had to be somebody who wouldn't be justly killed. This is a sword of justice and we deserve death. So it had to be somebody who, who wouldn't be dying for their own sin. And only one would be qualified to make that sacrifice. And he did. The flaming sword of justice fell on Jesus on the day he hung on the cross. Isaiah 53 again. Jesus the Messiah. He was cut off from the land of the living for us, on our behalf. He went under the sword and He opened a new and living way into the presence of God. He went first and the sword slew Him. And now, if we are in Christ, we will not be ultimately slain, but we have the way open to enter paradise. And this is, this is it. This is, this is, again, the gospel in seed form, the first gospel here. Here's what it means to be a Christian. It's not to say, I'm going to try really hard to live a good life. That's, if you're here, and if you're assuming that's why you're here, to be better, and you walked in these doors thinking, maybe the church is how I can be better, maybe that's how I can be a Christian, maybe that's how I can have eternal life. It's not. That's not what it means to be a Christian. I've got to try harder, I've got to be better, so that I can have eternal life. To be a Christian means to say, Father, can cover my sin because of what Christ has done. That's it. It's it's Him. So I'm going to return real quickly to where we began. We said this. 
people intuitively know that we're not the way we're supposed to be. We know this. This is why we work so hard to achieve. We work. We want to be. But nobody's really happy. We. We. I, I didn't get. I didn't get into that graduate school. I didn't get that promotion. I didn't. I, I, I'm gaining weight. I don't make that much money. Nobody wants to go out with me. And so. So. Uh, and people get all upset because they're looking for beauty. They're looking for credentials. They're looking for achievement. But what are those things? They're fig leaves. Fig leaves. They're ways of trying to deal with the nakedness, the shame. Just say, if you're not a Christian, and you've been covering your life with fig leaves, trying to, trying to cover the shame, trying to cover the, the nakedness you feel, the emptiness you feel, just accept what He's done on your behalf. Let Jesus Christ clothe you with His love and grace. Ask God to receive you because of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. That's what it is. I will cover your sins so that God will accept you and you can, you can go to heaven because of what Jesus has done for you. And you can go home. Christian, we need this too, don't we? Rest in what Christ has done for you. Ask the Holy Spirit to make increasingly real in your heart the, the, the wonders and the magnitude of what Jesus has done on your behalf. That, that, will, that will treat the cancer that remains in our lives of trying to constantly prove ourselves to other people, of, of, of being so nervous about God's favor or disfavor, about, about being so ashamed before people. We need this. We need the love of God to, to come into us, to come over us, to, to, to change everything in us so that we rest in Him. Let's pray. Father, would you speak this word to our hearts? Father, we know how forgetful we are and we can, we can continue to, to go back um, because we live in exile now, Father. We can, we can continue to hide. We continue to cover ourselves instead of living openly before you. And so I pray that you would, even as we sing now, Father, remind us that it is grace alone. It is grace alone that makes us able to stand before you with great joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.